0: Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, and I'm happy to have you back listening to another one of our episodes. And this one is going to be intriguing to say the least because we're finally going to have that discussion about brand and the brand's impact on experience management and how we can really transform your brand. So I'm joined today by uh, author and co-founder of a digital agency, Jeff Rosenblum. Jeff, welcome to the podcast and please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners.
1: Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Jeff Rosenblum. As you mentioned, I'm the founding partner of a digital agency. We're called Questus. We've worked with some of the biggest and the best brands in the world. And I'm also the author of a book called Friction, and a new upcoming book called Exponential, which is all about how to transform your brand by empowering instead of interrupting.
0: Excellent, Jeff. You know what we, we love about our guests is what their career paths are, and how do they get to what they're doing today. And we always find it intriguing when we ask this question, because rarely is it a straight path. There's always kind of some, some curves and some divergencies that occur. And so if you would kind of take our listeners through uh, your career and how you got into this field and, and what, what's your passion around it and what makes you tick and all that kind of great stuff.
1: Yeah, happy to start there. So, you know, I'm like a lot of entrepreneurs where I, I really, I had to be an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur. My mother was an entrepreneur. My in-laws were, my grandparents were, and if you know a lot of us, like it's wired in at an early age. So probably by the age of 10, I was starting my first businesses, creating chocolates with my brother and selling them to the kids in the street and and cleaning people's garages and running a a clothing business and a food business and college and all that. Uh, But the truth of the matter is I was a terrible student. I mean, maybe the world's worst student ever, a real teacher's nightmare. So I barely graduated high school. I barely graduated college. And as you can imagine, when you just barely graduate college, there's not a long line of companies looking to hire you. So, uh, you know, my career actually predates the internet. I opened up the yellow pages to M for marketing because I knew I loved that. And I just started cold calling companies. I got really lucky and I found a company being run by a couple of Harvard business school guys. Uh, Haldane King, Jacob Brown, love these guys to death could not have been any luckier to find two guys driving such amazing culture. Um, but they didn't really want to hire me, but I begged and I begged and I begged until they gave me a three-month internship, and then I turned that into a career. But what happened was I had a motorcycle, and I didn't have the motorcycle because I was cool. I had the motorcycle because I was broke. And when I put on the helmet, you know, it really clears you of all the distractions of your computer in the office as you're, as you're driving home. And What happened was they asked me to get the company connected to the Internet for the first time, and I quickly saw that if everyone was going to be connected to the Internet, our entire industry of market research was about to go through a complete and total revolution, and I was leading projects that took about six months to complete, and then by using the Internet, I was able to truncate that into about six days. So I'm still a zip face kid, but next thing you know, I've got Microsoft, Netscape, Sun Microsystems, Walt Disney, Levi Strauss, Discovery Channel. They're all my clients. And what happened was they didn't want to simply have me collect data. They had very specific questions, and that question was typically, what does the internet mean for me and my business? What does it mean for my brand, and what does it mean for advertising? And what I realized is that advertising in every brand was about to go through a complete and total revolution. Brands can no longer be built based upon interruptions, and they can no longer be built based upon a fictitious image. They're going to be built based upon the totality of their experience. They're going to be built based upon the content they produce. They're going to be built based upon how well they empower their target audience. So at that point, I realized, you know, I'm not built for market research, just like I wasn't built for high school or college. It, it requires a certain degree of, of, of calmness and a much longer attention span than I had. But I was super passionate about this concept of embracing this advertising revolution. And at the time, my college roommate, he was a world-class designer. He had uh, art gallery openings. He had famous folks like Johnny Depp or was buying his paintings. And we just got together and, you know, we talked about this revolution and I said, let's start an advertising agency. And he said, have you ever stepped foot in one? I said, no. He said, have you? And he said, no. I said, perfect, let's do it. So with absolutely no experience in the world of advertising, we started an advertising agency. And the idea was pretty simple. Let's build a team of outsiders and let's lead the revolution.
0: Wow, what an amazing uh, journey that is. And Jeff, I just love it because and I don't have any, I haven't been tracking this with each of my guests, but invariably, whatever a guest's expertise is, there's something that happened in their childhood that drove that. In your case, a family of entrepreneurs early on building things and, and growing businesses and so forth. And so that's the, the part that always fascinates me when I ask guests that question, because there's always something there in the DNA that that drives people to do this well, and be successful.
1: Yeah, I'll push that even further further for you, Bob, because it, it wasn't just sort of the, that DNA, but um, it was interesting. My mother was a psychotherapist, so her entire life was built around understanding, you know, how the human brain works and what motivates people and what keeps people happy. And my father was a salesman, so his job was also in the, in the business of brain manipulation to get, to get people to buy different products and services. But What was really interesting was my father – he had a really tough upbringing. So he just really wanted to be basically a geek. Like he was a great great dude, but he just wanted to be geek. So every night at dinner, there was all different science experiments. And the one that he loved, the basic theme was to show us how screwed up advertising is and how screwed up branding is. So, for example, we all know about the, the Pepsi challenge, right? You take Coke right? and Pepsi, and if you, if you drink it out of the can, most people prefer Coke. But if you drink it out of the cup, so you're covering the logos, most people prefer Pepsi. And the point being that you know Coca-Cola's brand is much stronger, even though the Pepsi product tends to taste better. But what my father would do is experiments like that. And his point was to show not just Coke and Pepsi, but he'd bring in like generic soda. And his whole idea was to show us, don't believe advertising. Don't pay a dollar, or whatever the price was at the time, Coke when you could pay 25%. Don't be so quick to to prefer brand A over brand B when really all you're buying is a fancy logo. And his idea was to really push me away from this world, but I was fascinated. I was like, holy smokes, this is incredible. This is the business of manipulating people's minds and and rather than getting repelled by it, I was totally attracted to it. And and thankfully, my father, who is leading these experiments, is, is literally the single most moral person I've, I've ever met. And his whole idea of sales is that he never actually did sell anything. His whole job was just to take care of his clients. And if he took care of his clients, his business would grow. So I took this whole concept of, of mind manipulation and branding and wanted to push it and go further with it and take it down that moral path and say, wait a sec, brands don't need to be about mind manipulation in a negative way. They don't need to tell a false story. They don't have to get by on just a fancy logo. It can be about a lot more than just the product. And it just, it really started at a young age at probably around 10, 12 years old, where I was fascinated by the entire industry.
0: Wow. That is, (laughs) thanks for that because it does push it kind of to the to the edge, which is really fascinating, Jeff, with that background and and what you did with it. Uh, very cool. You know, Jeff, we're, we're, we we're want to talk about your latest book, but you also mentioned you wrote a book uh, called Friction. Do you want to just share with our re- or listeners a little bit about that book before we jump into the new one that's coming out?
1: Yeah, I think your listeners would really understand the the core thesis statement of friction because you You're focused in on CX, and the idea is to say friction is anything that holds people back in life. It could be big things, and we call it macro friction, things that prevent you from being who you want to be. Or it could be micro micro friction, something in the the purchase journey that prevents you from doing what you want to do. And the point is, you can have some great advertising or a great brand to get somebody really interested in a product. But if you got friction in that journey, there's no way you're going to convert a prospect into a customer or a customer into a, an evangelist. So it's really about looking at the totality of that customer experience and making sure that at every step along that journey, you're empowering your target audience rather than simply creating friction.
0: That's, that's really interesting, Jeff. And, and, I, and I love when authors put a concept like that into a, a different perspective and how you look at friction because it sensitizes us to it, right? I mean, You're right, in customer experience, that's a lot about what we're talking about is not creating friction or eliminating friction from experiences that customers have with our brands and our products. Am I tracking with you on that?
1: You're, you're absolutely tracking. There's really, you know, the way we're talking about it now, Bob, is a little bit more of that micro friction. So for example, there's Mm. over a trillion dollars left in shopping carts for e-commerce sites every single year. And a lot of that is just simply based upon friction. Or is the mobile checkout page, is the desktop or the laptop checkout page, is it confusing, is it clumsy, right? And that's just one example, but there's so many stops along that purchase journey the packaging, the retail store, the person who doesn't smile behind the counter, the, the pop-up windows, the videos that don't load, the clumsy home pages, the information that you can't find, the confusing UI and UX. All of those things become bricks between a prospect and, a, and the conversion into a customer, and those bricks will build up and really create an insurmountable wall. And, you know, the other big part of it, though, is not just that that friction in the customer experience at that micro level, but it also goes to the macro friction that I alluded to earlier, which is can brands even take it one step further and really solve the big problems that, that people have in life? And when you can solve these big problems and help people fulfill upon their hopes and their dreams, then you're not just converting your prospects into customers, but that's when you're converting customers into an evangelist. Because when you can improve somebody's life, now you've got a much deeper relationship and people are much more likely to tell their friends about it on social media, but also like at the dining room table, at the bar, around the campfire. And those recommendations are typically 12 times or more trusted than a paid advertisement.
0: Well now I know why I get inundated with emails from a company when I leave something in a shopping cart based on the fact that 1 trillion dollars is left in shopping carts on a regular basis I could see why they're responding but but Jeff help me with this and and this is more from a personal experience standpoint is we're heading into 2022 and at the at the time of this taping of the podcast we're just ending the year but why do we still have these problems as consumers? UI, UX interfaces, websites that aren't working, promotions that don't work, shopping carts—all. Why do we still have that friction? Man, I love that
1: question. Um, in in summary, it's because of the machine and the shiny objects. The machine is this big advertising industry that drives people really honestly towards making a lot of the wrong decisions. So there's not anything wrong with television advertising per se. And there's not anything wrong with the entire concept of interruptions, meaning it's not just about TV ads, but it's also about print ads, banner ads, pop-up ads, pre-rolls, all of those tools work just fine. The issue is that we're asking all of those interruptions to do way too much. But perhaps more important for the machine is if you flip through all of the advertising magazines, Ad Age, Ad Week, if you look at the awards, if you look at a town called Cannes in the south of France that gives itself over to the advertising industry for one of the great parties around the world every single year, the folks who win those awards, the folks who get on the cover of those magazines, the vast majority of it, it's still about doing great TV ads. So if you get into the world of advertising and you wanna win an award and you wanna get a promotion and you wanna get on the cover of a magazine, well, you're naturally gravitated towards doing more and more TV ads. Well, people don't sit around watching TV ads. They did an ethnographic study. The younger generation, millennials, 89% of those TV ads are completely ignored. And the ethnographic researchers had had a theory. They thought people were just not gonna watch TV ads, because they've got DVRs. They're going to tape their content and then fast forward over it. That's not actually what happened. What happened is as they watch people in their homes, those ads still get delivered. But the next generation, and probably folks like you and me, Bob, also do the same thing, which is when the ads come up, we just pull out the supercomputers that sit in our pocket, our smartphones, and we mess around for three minutes, right? <laughs> we were up on Facebook. We're up on Instagram. they are up on Snapchat, TikTok, whatever is interesting for you. In your generation and then when the tv show comes back on or the ball game comes back on we look back up so we're completely ignoring the vast majority of these ads but the machine of the advertising industry continues to churn and give people awards and promotions based upon this storytelling that most people actually don't see
0: that is just crazy i don't have any other reaction to it jeff than that Man, um, you know,
1: if you look at Ad Age and look, I mean, you can, right. you can also point to me like, ah, sour grapes. That guy wants to be on the cover of Ad Age. <laughs> would love to be on the cover. I would. I'd love to win those awards because I think the work that we do and the work that a lot of agencies like Questus that are digitally centric, that, that build great platforms, that are boutique agencies, for the most part, we don't get those big shots at it. And they continue to just reward those those TV ads. And then they have the biggest... The biggest party for this whole thing is not just the one in South of France, but the big one coming up is Super Bowl ads, right? There's literally tens (laughs) and tens and tens of millions of dollars being spent on Super Bowl ads. And Ad Age, as an example, gives itself up to the entire industry and does multiple episodes. Uh, or issues, excuse me, all about the Super Bowl. And it's great. We love the Super Bowl ads, and I love reading about it. And again, there's certainly a little bit of jealousy that goes out there. But they also ran an article that said 80% of Super Bowl ads don't work. Could you imagine doing anything in business where you know that 80% of it isn't going to work? But we're still addicted. There's still the machine. People still want to win the awards. People still want to overinvest in television advertising.
0: 80%. 80%? Don't worry. That's and and yet we'll shortly we'll start hearing about how much a minute costs to advertise on the Super Bowl, right?
1: Man, you know one of the great ads, Super Bowl ads, was a couple years ago. It was the Bill Murray um, ad for Jeep, and we wrote about it in Exponential. We don't know what the exact figures are. They probably spent about ten to fifteen million dollars on this ad, and. The next day, and the next week, everyone claimed that this was the greatest ad in the Super Bowl. Frankly, I missed it. You probably missed it. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. missed it because right after the first two or three sets of Super Bowl ads, I think most people get pretty distracted, right? You're eating, you're drinking, you're talking to friends. Maybe you're actually into the football game. But everyone's talking about how great this ad is. And that actually works for them because they start getting a lot of free media. They spend maybe 10 to 15 million, but they're getting millions more in free media. Mm. So, congratulations to these guys. They made the best ad of all of them. And there were a bunch of suckers who bought ads that nobody remembered the next day. But what happened is I went on that typical journey afterwards because I was just curious. I was like, okay, well, what happens now? What if I am interested in that car? What if I love that ad? So I went up on you know that typical journey. I went to caranddriver.com, I went to jeep.com. I tried to find as much information as I could and it was just not available, right? So that comes back to the core theme and the message that you get across, Bob, is like there's a lot that goes into that customer experience and they just are way over indexing in the beginning of the journey where they're hitting people in that dream stage and they're getting people excited. But people still want to know the features, the functionality, the attributes, the value system, the pricing, how to purchase, and all of that information was greatly missing back at the time. I'll give them credit. They've made a lot of improvements over the past couple of years. Their their experience is much stronger. But I think the example remains true that companies are way over-indexing in the amount they spend on interruptions and not looking at the totality of that customer experience.
0: Uh, so true. So true, Jeff. And listeners, your are tuned in to the all things considered CX podcast and our guest today is Jeff Rosenblum and we're talking about his first book friction but he's he's alluded to his second book that was just released exponential transform your brand by empowering instead of interrupting so let's jump into that one as well Jeff and some additional thoughts that you have uh, from the first book to the second book and some of the key learnings that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: yeah, thanks for teeing that up. You know, Exponential really picks up where, where friction left off. And, and if you just read Friction and then you pick up Exponential, you'll, you'll find a lot of the, the same themes. I just get a lot more deeper into it and a lot more actionable with Exponential. But the idea in the thesis statement behind Exponential is brands that break away from the addiction of interruptions and spend more time on building empowering platforms – both internally for their own team via culture and externally for their customers, those brands grow exponentially. They grow to the point where they absolutely dominate the competition.
0: So if we talk a lot about in customer experience, about the fact that we have to tie to the brand, Jeff, and, and, and there's been some, suggestions that the definition of a customer experience is that the brand is the promise and customer experience is the promise kept. That linkage is very hard to make for some reason when we're trying to design experience strategies. Too often it's about fixing customer service or fixing friction points, no pun intended there. but uh, and it's and rarely do it, does it tie back to the brand. And we push hard on that to say, your brand, you built this brand, and now the experience is a part of that brand, and they have to be aligned and linked. Did you find that in the research that you did for this book? And what are some of the, you know, perhaps insights you can share with experienced professionals that are struggling to make that linkage?
1: Yeah, I I found that through the totality of my career, you know, going Mm. back to that first point where we talked about the early points of of my career in helping pioneer the field of internet research, I was collecting so much data back then, I mean hundreds and hundreds of thousands of data points, because I was doing tons of survey research, but I was also doing a lot of ethnographic research, meaning I would spend time with people in their homes, I would go shopping with people, I did tons of usability tests as people were uh, using the earliest iterations of websites and mobile sites and, and applications. And what you realize, the more you spend time with people and the more you understand their experience and, and what motivates them is it's not about the big brand story. It's about the totality of the experience, right? How many books have been written? How many articles have been written that says, what is the definition of a brand? And, and usually those stories or those books come back to the concept of calling a brand a story because brands have largely been built based upon those 30-second those uh, interruptions in those 30-second stories, but now brands are built based upon the totality of the experience, and here's, here's a great eye-opening piece of research. If you go back to that Jeep example and you look at that category, the typical person, when they go to buy a car, spends 13 hours conducting research, and I think the same is true probably of most significant purchases right i'm not an expert in selling impulse buys like like gum and soda my focus is a lot more on high involvement purchases right you're going to buy a vacation some sporting equipment appliances stuff where you're going to spend dollars so in the automotive category you spend 13 hours so let's say you see that super bowl ad well that one that was long that was a big ad that was 60 seconds Let's say you watched it two more times. That's three minutes. Let's say there's a bunch of 30, uh, 30 second spots. Maybe you saw some banner ads, some pop up ads, some Instagram stuff, some pre rolls. I think we can all uh, agree that at a certain point, you've seen enough and it's going to border on annoying. Well, that's about 10 minutes of total exposure. 10 minutes. <laughs> that means there's 12 hours and 50 minutes left in that journey. And thanks to data and technology and creativity, Now brands can do something about that 12 hours and 50 minutes. It used to be they can't really do anything. Here's a bunch of TV ads or maybe some direct mail. Drive people into the dealership and hope to God you got great salespeople in the dealership. But those days are over, right? Now we can use all those aforementioned tools and do something on a one-to-one empowering basis across the entire consumer journey to help people invest their dollars, their time, their attention, and their evangelism as well as possible. But frankly, you know, brands are still having trouble recognizing that there's another 12 hours and 50 minutes or whatever it is in their category. There's hours and hours of time that can be applied.
0: Yes, indeed. And I, it's funny, I just wrote an article about the car buying experience and how it still has not come of age. Um, And, and that was based on personal experience, but just the horrendous way that, um, that when you do inquiries and you're doing the research, the 12, the 13 hours of research, right. You're trying to find out information and detail and, and how difficult it is to do that when you're buying an automobile that, you know, could be 50,000 or a hundred thousand, whatever the automobiles are costing these days, if you can find one. Um, But but it's just fascinating to me to hear you talk about that in in those terms, because uh, it certainly is the, is an experience that I've had. The other aspect that I want to ask you about, uh, Jeff, that you mentioned in the book is unprecedented ROI. And again, experienced professionals spend lots of time talking about how do we get experience management investments to return on those investments? And it's, it's difficult. And oftentimes we're at fault because we treat them as mom and apple pie. And we've got to do this for our customers instead of being very specific about the ROI. But your book seems to go into specifics about, how this will produce ROI for, for the brands.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind is, is the ROI for the humans, right? So as, mm. as brands and as corporations, we think about the return on investment. Think about that earlier example, the $1 trillion left in people's shopping carts, right? If you could just overcome whatever technological flaw that is, you're at the greatest moment in the possible relationship with a prospect, right? They're about to pull out their their credit card and purchase from you, right? So I think we can all agree that there's some ways that that brands can mathematically invest their dollars that are going to lead to strong ROI. But I think the other thing that we need to keep in mind is consumers also are running this equation in their head. I think it's a lot more subconscious than a corporation, but I think we're all sitting there thinking, okay, am I going to get back what I'm putting into this relationship? The amount of time I'm giving the amount of of attention I'm giving. I think a lot of people are much more aware of the amount of data they're giving, the recommendations they're giving online, the recommendations they're giving on social media and to friends and in the bars, but most importantly, the hard-earned dollars that they're giving up. So I think it's really important that we help people, we empower people to invest their time, their data, their recommendations, and their dollars as effectively as possible. And what that really means is how do we give people as much functional content as possible? In the advertising industry and in all those words we're talking about, it's really based upon telling these big, engaging, emotional stories. And that's great, we do that. That's part of what we do. We do it all day, every day. We love to think we're great at it. But I think what's missing from a lot, for a lot of brands is also the functional content. Going back to that Jeep example, that's a pretty big purchase, right? or a pair of skis, or a vacation, or a home appliance. There's a lot of features and functionality that can be told in a romantic, in an engaging, in an emotional way. But making sure that that target audience understands what makes your product different and what makes your product better. And again, you don't win a lot of awards for that, but you generate ROI as a brand because you're helping consumers generate an ROI as an individual.
0: And Jeff, uh, you, you give some examples in your book, uh, Apple, Patagonia, Jeep, you mentioned, and some others. Those are big brands. Is this just for the big brands or can this be applied across uh, all sizes of businesses and brands from your perspective?
1: No, this absolutely works great for small companies. There's, there's two that I'm really enamored with. One I was just introduced to recently, American Giant. A lot of people are aware of this brand. It's, it's not nearly as big as a Patagonia or a Nike. They're known for making some of the best sweatshirts that you can buy. It's a very premium sweatshirt. But what I love about it is the reason that there's such high-quality sweatshirts, and now it's more than that. It's sweatshirts and pants and flannels. They, they've definitely expanded. But what makes these products such high quality is that they're made right here in America. So they've got a higher degree of manufacturing. They treat the environment much better than many other manufacturing facilities overseas. Perhaps most importantly, they treat each of the human beings that work for them with dignity and respect and a stronger paycheck than they can get in other places. So now you've got factories in places that could use some help like the Appalachian mountains. And now they're producing sweatshirts here in America. And then we all saw how the supply chain got really messed up through COVID over the past couple of years. So now they're in the right place at the right time, not only producing these great sweatshirts and not only helping people in their own supply chain to manufacture in America, but they're able to get the products out and distribute them, unlike a lot of other companies. Another That's number, great. <laughs> I'll tell you one more that I yes, really Yes, please. Is uh, a brand called Farmer's Dog. I got my first dog, like many people did over COVID. I think if you conduct a little research and you understand your, your gut instinct, just like human beings, your dog is going to live longer and live a better life if they eat healthy food. And, you know, if you look at the typical kibble that dogs eat, it, it just it doesn't pass the, the quote unquote sniff test to me. It really doesn't seem particularly healthy. So what Farmer's Dog did is they realized this and they've got uh, really what they market as human quality food for dogs. And it's not exactly human quality. I'm sure you could eat it and and sustain yourself. It's not quite that delicious, but you know, there's, there's, they get to know your dog on a one-to-one basis, the age, the breed, the size, they ship it to you once every couple of weeks. It's, it's, it's shipped frozen. It comes with a container. And what they're basically doing is taking a bunch of food from farmers that they probably can't sell and can't package up. And now they're making it available to dogs. So it's chicken, pork, beef, lentils, broccoli, uh, carrots are all mixed in here. Incredibly healthy food for the dog. So the dog is healthier. I'm empowered as a consumer. The farmers now have a new revenue model. Um, There's no retail distribution for it. So it's a lot easier to buy. So at the core of it, the entire platform is there's no sacrifices. Everybody's empowered and everybody wins. But even on that micro friction, they're nailing it. Like I had a package that didn't arrive the other day. It wasn't hard for me. Like I didn't have to call an 800 number. I didn't have to sit on hold for an hour. I sent a quick text to them because they always text me like, hey, the food is arriving. They immediately replied, hey, Jeff, we'll fix it. If you're in a pinch, here's a quick recipe that you can cook for your dog. And we'll have the new food out to you within a day. So they've removed friction at that macro level and they've removed friction at the micro level.
0: You know, isn't it fascinating that brands like that are able to do it so well? And then you look around and you go, "What's wrong with the rest of you? Why can't you figure this out?
1: You know, great it's so true, Bob. And I, I think there's just an advantage to being a startup, right? They're not stuck with the legacy business models.
0: Exactly. Jeff, fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time. Can't believe it's gone by this fast. Uh, final words, uh, wisdom or thoughts for our listeners today, before we wrap up our podcast.
1: I think the big thing I always come back to is it's time for brands to be great. Not simply say they're great.
0: That is, that's outstanding and, and definitely words to live by Jeff. Um, how can listeners get in touch with your company? I obviously they can, uh, buy your book, but how can they get in touch with me want to learn more?
1: Yeah, probably the best place is our website is questus.com. Q-U-E-S-T-U-S.com. You can find me on Instagram. I'm not necessarily an Instagram influencer by any stretch, but I'm at the Jeff Rosenblum. Um, I'm up on Twitter at jrquestus. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And, uh, and I appreciate this, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you, Jeff. And this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast with my guest, Jeff Rosenblum, co-founder of Questus and author of Exponential, Transform Your Brand by Empowering Instead of Interrupting. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your networks. As always, stay tuned for another episode of this podcast, as well as my colleagues at the CX of M Radio Podcast Network. Thank you.